0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising Podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and, of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode. And as always, keep advising.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Adventures in Advising. It's our sixth episode of 2021, and we have a couple of great interviews for you to enjoy.
0: Yep, and hey, greetings and salutations, and welcome again to episode 31 of the podcast. And as always, we're excited for you to listen in and join us for this podcast episode. First up is our interview with Dr. Cynthia Pascal from Northern Virginia Community College, where we talk about being student ready, integrating academic and student support, as well as people who have inspired her. So let's take a listen. Dr. Cynthia Pascal is the Director of Student Services at Northern Virginia Community College's online division. NOVA is the largest educational institution in Virginia and the second largest community college in the United States, serving 71,000 full time students representing 180 countries. As a result of their commitment to reflection, assessment, and social justice, Nova was named an Achieving the Dream Leader College of Distinction and has received the Higher Education Excellence in Diversity Award three years in a row. When not serving Nova community, she is a leader, faculty member, and consultant with NACADA, the global community for academic advising, and the Advising Success Network. Cynthia is an expert in guided pathways and holistic academic advising, computer-assisted advising such as LMS, CRM, and iPass. Delivery system models such as advising centers, centralized versus decentralized, faculty versus paraprofessional, professional advising and virtual advising, student development, diversity issues and cultural competency, grant writing, legal issues, orientation, retention, faculty and advisor
2: training.
0: Cynthia, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. (laughs)
1: We're delighted that you joined us and we have a wealth of things to talk about, but we always begin by asking our guest, how was it that you, you came to, to work in, in higher ed? What was it that, that inspired you and how did you end up where, where you are today, Cynthia?
2: Well, it's funny because your listeners won't be able to see the giggle I have on my face and the excitement. I was almost a high school dropout. Um, I barely made it to college. My parents, two days before college, I came crying into their bedroom and I said, oh, I think all my friends are going to college. I should probably go. And because I was a second generation, not first generation college students, my parents knew what to do, which was enroll me immediately and figure out what FAFSA was. And from there, we were off. A couple of days later, I started to college. Um. And so I never, ever, ever in a million years would have put myself in higher education. And what happened is I got my um, job, my first job as an educator in K through 12. And I said, this is not a good fit. So I tried working at a proprietary institution and I just happened to sit next to some academic advisors and said I want what they had and then my career took off ever since then all I want to do is talk about academic advising
0: yeah and then even on social media you're a lot lot of times posting about academic advising and things related to that and just recently you posted on your social media an article from calmatters.org titled thousands of college students still needing or taking unneeded classes And in that article, it talked about how remedial classes are an equity issue. And it said that Black and Latino students were more likely than white and Asian students to take remedial math courses. And your comment was that rather than looking at students with a fixed mindset, we need to be student ready, providing holistic support and embedded tutoring. Can you talk more about that article and maybe just with that, how institutions, departments and advising can provide that holistic student ready support?
2: Absolutely. And I think that's really what it is, is being student ready, not college ready. For so many years, we've always talked about students need to be college ready, student need to be college ready. Well, the reality is, is for students to be college ready, they need to have a rich uh, educational foundation and they're not getting that. And so we are, they're graduating from their institutions, their K through 12 institutions, um, not prepared to be going to college, and yet they still are eligible to go to college, especially in community colleges, um, where we try to remain having open access institutions. Um rather than keeping this fixed mindset of saying this is how we're gonna exclude you from um being able to succeed and put up obstacles and barriers to your success, what if we flipped that around and said, hey, what do students need um, to be ready to be to class? And how do we get it to them? And a lot of times what we're seeing is these gaps in education um, really have to do, again, with resources that are uh, socioeconomic, um, which you'll see across the world. It's not just an American problem. And so... The student reading mindset and the growth reading mindset is that every student has the potential to be successful if they're given the appropriate tools to succeed. And so our role is to give them those tools. So what if instead of saying you can't be in this English class or you can't be in this math class, we say, let's get in this math class and English class. We're going to give you the same high expectations we um, have at the two-year institution, at the four-year institution. But we are going to give you every single resource you need to succeed and help you along the way. So as you don't understand how to read a course syllabus, as you understand not how to how to not um, access tutoring services or talk to an advisor, we're going to be proactive and we're going to give you that guidance and we are going to almost read your mind so so that you don't even have to worry about not knowing the questions. We're going to give you the answer before the question's even there. And so I think that's what that article really talked about. And it's it's exciting and scary because that means you have to change resources. Um, and so that means you can't resource your institutions the same way you've always done. It can't be business as usual. And so that's that's change and change, even good change is scary
1: and i suppose in terms of um things not being business as usual obviously we've all been through the the pandemic now for for the last uh, year or thereabouts and um I, I i suppose two things building on maybe your previous um answer and and the way in which you know we need to become student ready but also maybe looking back i, I know you did a, a piece with um uh, on cultivating a, a culture of care through advising, and I think about a year ago, maintaining a community of care during um, COVID. I suppose a year on from from that, looking at that now for for all of us, for advisors who are listening, for our for our other listeners who are involved in higher ed we're not, none of us are going to be business as usual. I don't think <laughs> yeah, I mean, this has changed things, but like, how do we ensure, you know, that, um, the best outcomes for students, but also for advisors and those working in, in higher ed.
2: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast. Yeah, so, you know, I've been in the online division for our college. So in theory, a fully remote division for over 10 years, um, 13 or 14 years in total. And this is not business as usual, even for people in online divisions. This is asking an entire global community um, from itty bitty students to graduate students to overnight go fully remote and fully online. And that's not just students, but that's also faculty, staff, administrators. And that just changes everything. Um, and so taking this idea of becoming ready, it's not just about giving people um, a laptop, right? Well, you're online, so go online, open up your laptop and, and we'll be fine. That doesn't take into account that, there is online pedagogy that there is advising pedagogy that there are student learning outcomes that there are all these things that need to happen in a very different space and what that does is it puts people in crisis and we have been in crisis for 11 months now um almost 12 months in march for for most of us um and and so it takes a couple of things it Takes uh assessing where you've come from um, and seeing what works and keeping that, figuring out where those gaps are, what doesn't work, and then figuring out what we need to plan for in the future. And it's a moving target. And while this moving target is happening, recognizing that we're in a global pandemic, that race relations have never been worse, um, that... In America and in Uganda and other countries, they're having very contentious elections uh, that have caused completely complete upheaval of people of their systems. And you're asking people to learn in a way that they're not comfortable in learning, and teaching in a way that they're not comfortable teaching. Um, and you're also asking people to put on a brave face and and uh, be positive and that's a big ask. And so with all that coming together, it's really important to think about, you know, that culture of care. So as you're assessing all these gaps in, in, in what we need to do and how we can support faculties and staff and advisors from entry to completion, uh, how we can help the students what are you doing to support each person in their dimensions of wellness along the way? So when we talk about the dimensions of wellness, there are six of them and it it involves spiritual wellness, physical wellness, mental wellness. And you can't just be like, well, you're physically well, you don't have COVID. So have a great day. It just doesn't work that way. There's so many pieces to that puzzle that need to be addressed. And so that's when we talk about business as usual, uh, There's just no room for that. What we need is uh, more patience and more grace and more love uh, and less toxic positivity, which I am the absolute worst with. I will attaboy you all day long. Um, And then empathy. And I think that's really a big deal. And not just empathy um, from person to person, but also empathy in our policies and procedures.
0: And it's still things that we're still trying to figure out and, and work through, but it's one where, you know, we're all trying, you know, and, and we're all trying to do the best we can in, in these these times. Now, as the director of student services, you probably have a lot of responsibility within, you know, student engagement, programs, development, and, and all of that. So what does your role entail? And in your role, how are you integrating the academic and student support?
2: Wonderful. So that... I'm I'm blessed. I need you to know that I work under some very, very visionary people. Um, I work for Dr. Jennifer Lerner, who is our um, AVP of e-learning at Northern Virginia Community College. And then I also am mentored um, by Dr. Villagran Clever, who's our VP of student service. And um, these women are both just very influential in the work they do. They bring a lot of best practices from the online learning communities as well as achieving the dream. So you blend that together and you get a recipe for success. And why I say that is to say that when we had a pivot from going online, doing online learning and campus-based learning to fully remote, fully online learning, we were in a unique positions to either grow and be successful or fall flat on our face. Because we had good, strong leadership, who had a vision, we were able to grow and expand. And one of the things we did is we uh, enhanced our already existing virtual student union. So virtual student union, for those who aren't um, aware is it's a meeting space, just like if you were to go to a physical campus and there was a union hall or maybe where your bookstore is located or a cafeteria. It's where you walk in and that's where all the hustle and bustle is, right? That's where you see all the upcoming events. Maybe some people are just um, goofing off on the sidelines. It's engagement, but some of it's formal and some of it's informal. You're hoping there's pizza. There may or may not be pizza. And it's the same concept just in the virtual space. It's, Uh, The fun stuff that we talk about, like clubs and organizations, but also the co-curricular stuff. Um, And we blend it all in this space that is welcoming for students and really is in their language. Our website, while beautiful, is not in student-friendly language. It's in policy procedure language. This is all coming from a student lens and removing the lingo that is not helpful, Uh, removing the terms, syllabus, bursar, things like that. It's student language in a student space. And what we do is we go into that space and we bring them activities that we think, um, that they need to be a global, you know, to be a good global citizen, to be a good employee, uh, to be a good friend, to have a healthy relationship and we bring it all to them. And so what we've done is created some, uh, Kind of more transactional spaces um, where they can ask quick questions, have discussion boards, things of that nature. But we've also expanded it to do really rich and robust um, webinars as well as discussion boards. So, for instance, yesterday uh, uh, was Tuesday for those of you who don't know my schedule. (laughs) And that's Black Chats. And so, Black Chats, um, anyone is welcome, including 40 year old white women. Um, and the entire conversation was engaging black vo- voters um, and how you can run for office if you're interested. And so what they did is brought some histori- history in. They brought some curriculum content and then they had an opportunity to talk to the experts. And then afterwards, academic advisors, career advisors kind of hang out to see, you know, does anybody have any questions? Um, one student was a student in that field and talked about scholarships. And so it's bringing this really rich discussions into a virtual space, but also keeping it light and fun and engaging. Um, we also have done um, LGBT IQA chats. We have... Um, Had DJ nights where we do that, that's what we call our physical wellness, where we have a DJ come and we all do a dance party. We've done escape rooms. So it's not just all curricular or co curricular, but there is an opportunity to have. fun there. And, um, and, and that's one of the really cool things we've done. It's also really enhanced accessibility to academic advising and financial aid. Um, today's conversation was about financial aid and what happens to your financial aid if you get a felony for drug charges. And so uh, that's one of those hidden secrets people don't tell you about is if you have a drug charge, you don't have, have financial aid in America. But if you don't know, you don't know. And so then we talk about it in terms of an advising way, way. What happens if your aid gets taken away? What happens if, um, you find yourself in a precarious, you know, situation that threatens your livelihood? And then we, um, do some critical thinking activities. So it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, it's been a growing experience and we have, had some hit misses, but essentially we have 71,000 students on a platform now where they can choose to be super engaged or not engaged at all um, in the conversation. So that's been really exciting.
1: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And, and I love the holistic approach to it and the fact that you have so many different kind of voices feeding in, but but students are getting the, the information um, that they need. Um, now, I, I saw mention, um, I think somewhere that, um, the um, you're an um, achieving the dream college. Um, yeah. could, you, could you tell us a little bit more for, for listeners, uh, and me who might not <laughs> be so familiar with that? Could you tell us a little bit more about what that means?
2: You bet. So, achieving the dream, like Nakata, which is a global community, is a global organization that just happens to be uh, located in the United States. Um, they did have Dream 2021 last, uh, uh, last week, and we actually had members from South Africa and um, Holland join us. So it really is a global community. And what it is, is it really teaches institutions how to look at students and um, policies and procedures and resources and services from a holistic lens in everything that you do. So if you're writing an admissions policy, how do you write it? So it is 360 all the way to graduation. How do you make it more accessible? And when it's not accessible, what do you do? Sometimes you have low hanging fruits that are super duper easy. For instance, what if every one of us put a syllabus statement that says, listen, this is a culture of care at our college. And we want you to know we care about you. You have an academic advisor who can help you through your challenges with goal setting. You have, we have mental health resources, maybe not at the college, but at the community level. And this is how you get your basic needs met if you have, you know, food, housing insecurities. So it's that low little step. I wrote that for my, um, syllabus. And because we're in Canvas, which is an online platform, I was over able to upload it within minutes to hundreds of syllabi. Which is unheard of. Um, so that's low hanging fruit, but then it's the bigger things. What would it look like to serve students in your, in prison populations for your community? What would it look like to not penalize people for being pregnant or parenting? What would it look like to really engage those first generation, um, students, have a conversation, in a language they understand, and really remove all those barriers that they don't know how to um, to navigate, but more importantly, aren't necessary. We had hundreds of holds in place before, uh, or service indicators, whatever you call them, holds in place before going through this Achieving the Dream process. And so what they look for in Achieving the Dream is um, looking at all of your programs, and you can start small. You don't have to go big. You can start with one department, but looking at um, sustained interventions. So through the academic journey from application to graduation, what does that look like, that sustained engagement? Being strategic about that engagement, not saying, um, everybody send this student an email. So 300 offices are saying like, did you know you have to apply for financial aid? Do you know this is due? Do you know you have to pick up your books? Do you know you have to check out of your residence hall? All on the same day, being really mindful about the messaging and what you want to say and when it's helpful to say it. Um, integrating those supports. So like I talked about being a student ready institution, Putting those report, uh, those supports in when they're at, where they're actually needed and when they're actually needed. So are they in the classroom? Are they in the restrooms? So, you know, when we talk about things, um, like menstrual health and equity, do your students have access to just basic need stuff like period products? And so really integrating it into everything you do. So not just the classroom, not just the advising office, but the bathroom and the co-ed bathroom, um, not just the female bathroom. Um, so really expanding what your definition of student is and student spaces, And then being proactive, not waiting for the crisis to happen and really um, taking a step back and say, what do we know historically happens with students at about this time of year or about this time in the semester or about this time in their career? And how can we pro- be proactive about that? milestone. And last but not least, personalize each experience. So not every first generation student is at risk. Not every pregnant and parenting student is struggling with time management. Not every student who um, is high achieving is having a smooth semester. Um, and so just really personalizing your support so it's not so cookie cutter. Now, you're probably wondering, how did I remember all of that? Glad you asked. It's on their website for Achieving the Dream in their Holistic Student Supports Toolkit. And it actually has an acronym called SIPP, S-S-I-P-P. So if you're looking to uh, look it up, they're great. And again, they are global. They speak in a more universal language. I know uh, when you interview Americans, we like to sit in a little American comfort zone, but they really expand that comfort zone.
0: Nice. And if you remember, we'll put a link in our show notes for that, too. And I like the the individual personalized piece because a lot of times, not that everyone does it, but you hear about from other people when you go to conferences, how sometimes at their institution, they might group people together. And it's like, well, you fit within this, so we're going to offer you all of this or, you know, you need to take care of this. And it's like, well, maybe I don't need to. Now, NOVA's 71,000 students. How many campuses are we talking about here?
2: So, uh, we have six campuses, a couple like workforce centers, and then our online division. So, it really is a large institution, and it's a very diverse institution. So, um, spatially, we're not close by. It's about an hour drive to different parts. And so, with that, you get a rural community and a very urban and suburban community. And for those of you who don't know where Virginia is, you're not alone. It's right next to Washington, D.C., which is the nation's capital. So we also are in this very unique um, position where on top of all these things that happen just in traditional college life and traditional community college life, we are um, the go to people when political issues happen. So when House bills come up um, for different different laws or potential changes in expectations, they look to us and say, well, what are they doing? Um, and that's good news and bad news for for a variety of reasons. Um, but that's, it's a big institution. 180 different countries are represented. Um, and, uh, we're, we're majority Pell Grant, which, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, our, our lingo Pell grants are for students who are under resourced, um, financially. Um, and so they're eligible for uh, money from our government, um, to kind of help them get equal access to education. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening
1: to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby.
0: Yeah, but I would imagine like with your role you're probably collaborating with a lot of these campuses. So I guess with that like how is it like working with such a large community with a large team with these different campuses and making sure that all the challenges are are being addressed, all the best practices are being implemented, information's being shared.
2: So we're not perfect, <laughs> so it's always progress, not perfection. But we've had a lot of wins in the last year, and um, we are under new leadership. Um, and she's actually not; she's she's officially graduated for a year. Dr. Cross, our school president, um, started a year ago, and that was part of the conversation when we um, were interviewing the different candidates. Is what are you going to do about communication? You're talking about about two thousand five hundred adjunct faculty full-time faculty and staff over a large swath of of the area, what are you going to do to make sure we're all on the same page? And so part of of what she immediately implemented was what we call the daily flyer. The daily flyer is a way that we communicate important happenings going on in the world. Um, in our world, I should say, um, so that everybody is on the same page of what to expect. And so then as a uh, member of leadership, I also know that if I need a message out, that I need to put it there um, with enough time to know that not everybody reads it every day and to kind of plant that seed. So as uh, big changes or little changes happen, we put it in the daily flyer. On top of that, I'm very proactive with my team about trying to be transparent. And that's really hard in a world where there's things that are happening that I don't know the answer to. So for instance, we're centralizing our advising model right now. And it's happening tomorrow, actually, the 25th, February 25th. In a year, we should come back and have this conversation again. Um, and we were given a plan. And the plan does not impact my team, um, my people who are non-advisors, but I shared it with everybody because what's important to know is, well, it might not affect you, it's going to affect your friends. And so really to get that information out. And then again, putting that information in a centralized place for students as well, planting that seeds there as well. So we do put it in the virtual student union, That our um, VP of student services also added um, Night News. We are the Nova Nighthawks. Um, and so they have their own every other week uh, resource they can go to. And so anything you can think of, we tried to put in a, a multitude of places. And what the pandemic has taught us, though, um, and, and maybe this is true for other places, is students don't identify as a specific campus. They don't say, well, I'm Annandale or I'm Nova Online or I'm Woodbridge. Right. They say I'm a Nova student. I'm a Nova Nighthawk. So rather than having different groups with pockets of policies and procedures and pockets of, well, this is our culture, so this is how we're going to approach it, we really make sure to streamline our processes. So we regularly go through all of our processes and procedure and say what's working and what's not working. And when there's offenders, myself included talking to them and saying, Hey, I see you did this differently. I don't know if you saw this last communication, but this is the route we're going. And it's just having a little bit of gentle, empathetic accountability. And that's been really helpful as, as well, because it's putting us towards the same page. And and last, I'll say what's been very helpful with the communication is on the back end, we've integrated a lot of our systems. So we just moved to a ticketing system um, to answer emails. Now, all of our offices are separate, but it has a shared search engine for student emails. And so if Susie contacts financial aid, The registrar's office, their academic dean, it doesn't make a difference. As long as I punch in Susie's name, it's going to pull up all Susie's information so I can either confirm and reaffirm the message she's received or say, I have no record of you doing this. Who did you talk to so we can kind of figure out what happened? And that's been helpful not only for accountability purposes and transparency purposes, but also really communicating consistent messages to the students. And, and we see that with big customer service groups like banks, um, any, anything on Amazon, they know what you've shopped for. It's having that same system in place for our students. Um, and we found that very helpful as well.
1: Um, yeah, it, it sounds, uh, I can see how it, how it would be certainly. Um,
2: now, alongside
1: the Nova Nighthawks uh, community, you're also uh, a member of the Nakata community. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about um, your involvement with, with Nakata? Um, maybe how how it first came across your your radar and uh, how you have uh, been involved.
2: Absolutely, thank you. Um, so I joined Nakata in two thousand seven. I, I had a, a supervisor at the time who recognized how critical professional development was to our success. And it was a small institution that wasn't very, uh, pro professional development. They were just like, well, we'll train you for a day or two and then have at it. And that's fine. But that doesn't make for an informed advisor. It doesn't, um, maybe it answers a little piece of the informational piece, but it doesn't talk about that conceptual or relational piece. So when I started advising, my practice was very different. It was scheduling. I could have easily worked at the registrar's office and been just fine. Um, the only difference is I really am a people person. Um, and so it's very easy for me to talk to strangers Um, and so I was just Gabby in general. So I could build the relationship. I give them something, you know, I prescribe them classes. You will take X, Y, and Z. And here's your prescription and have a good day. Um, and, and that worked at the time. But what I found is I needed much more than that. I needed much more than that in my skill set, but also just in my professional development, um, that doing, um, really uh, repetitive things like scanning or uh, prescribing things like that makes for a really uneventful life and an unfulfilling career. And so in 2007, I uh, started looking into going to an event for Nakata and, and my institution approved it. And I went and once you have gone to Nakata event, you cannot go back. Like it. It is life-changing, and it's unlike any other professional organizations um, that I've worked with. For instance, um, when Matt shared my bio, he said, Dr. Pascal. No, I'm not Dr. Pascal at Nakata. I'm Cynthia. And we take away the labels, and we take away uh, the titles, and we come in there as advisors. And we're all here for the same thing. There's an assumption if you're at a Nakata um, event that you want to learn how to be a better advisor. And you want to make friends and you want to get involved. And if you say yes to any of those things, they're going to give it to you. And so I remember someone flippantly said, You know, if you want to get involved, come talk to me afterwards. And I said, I want to get involved. Um, And I knew no one in Nakata at the time. And they said, Cool. Gave me a folder and I started doing these weird survey things, collecting surveys. And by the time I was done, I was hooked. and just really loved the service uh, opportunity. So while they were giving something to me at a professional level, um, they were also growing me on a on a on a spiritual level. And I think service work can really be spiritual when we talk about sp- uh, wellness. Uh, being of service to other is 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 a way to connect to whoever your higher power is, if you believe in one. And so it, they provided me this opportunity to. To give back, and so then they said, "Well, why don't you read one of these books on our website? You can just volunteer to read a book." And I said, "I can't write." And they said, "Don't worry about it. We'll edit it. Um, Read the book and write a summary." And I read the book and write a summary, and they're like, "Wow, this is a summary," and they fixed it. (laughs) So I looked like an intelligent human being, Um, and they they made me sound lovely. Um, And it wasn't about was I there yet. They helped me to get there, and then I just kept raising my hand, and they said, "Yes, come back, come back, come back. We have more. You can do more." Um, And they really made me feel a part of. And it's different. I'm very engaged in other groups. There's a difference. This is family. When we say Nakata family, it really is family. Um, We I consider people uh, sisters, brothers, uh, and non-binary siblings. Um, when I, when I think about Nakata and so it really is this group that really is, uh, brings a loving spirit and then they teach you not only to, to be of service to your community, but to bring others with you. And so that's one of the really, uh, important things to Nakata too, is not to, there's enough success to go around. There is enough, um, opportunity to go around. So as you see people who want to get engaged, bring them with you. Um, especially if they're from diverse backgrounds. You know, in diverse background, a lot of times we think about skin color, and, and certainly that is important, or gender identity, is certainly that's important. But what about educational institutions? I'm a community college. Community colleges are a world of different than a four-year institution. And a four-year institution in America is very different than a four-year institution in Europe. Um, or in Africa. And so it's something that you kind of have to think of, uh, as, as you engage people is, is what can they bring to the table and what can those voices highlight? Um, and what I have found is lifelong friendships from that. I found, um, a group that I can work with. And today I reached out to my community members and I said, you know, we have this really difficult policy on threat assessment um, in prison, uh, pr- people who are incarcerated for violent crimes. It's very black and white policy. However, it doesn't take into account uh, restorative justice reform, and it doesn't t- take into account what happens when people want to reenter the community. So we're just saying they're not going to have an education. Good luck. That doesn't fall in line with my belief system. So I've reached out to other people just to see how they do it. I may or may not get responses, but chances are they know someone who knows someone who can help me. And that's what I love about Nakata. Um, And now I will get off my soapbox.
0: (laughs) Well, two things about that is with Nakata, you know, you're talking about how you kept asking and they're like, yeah, sure. Do this, do this, do this if anyone's listening, don't feel if you've asked a lot and didn't volunteer a lot, there's always something more. And they're never going to turn you away, because they will find something for you. And the second thing is, you mentioned Nakata family. And I know we've heard that a lot at conferences, we've heard that a lot on this podcast. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about like the toxic positivity. And sometimes on what I've seen recently on social media, or I've not recently over the last few months, you have a lot of people that post about work. And if they hear the word family associated with work they're like that's toxic that's when you should run but for Nakata it's actually the family it's actually a true term for for that organization because we're all in it together and we're all trying to help each other and yes like you said there's success to go around now whether it's within Nakata or in your in your position right now or any prior roles I'm sure there's people that have inspired you throughout the years is there is there any anyone and it's probably a long list but is there a couple of people that you can kind of shout out as you know mentors that, that you've had that have inspired you throughout your time
2: okay first of all I will get emotional on you so I have no shame in my game pandemic lifestyle is full transparency so it's it's full Cynthia um. So you know, my my father was an educator. We moved around my my childhood from different institutions because once you get into leadership, there's only so many roles. Um, and and I'll be honest, I about ten years ago, kept falling flat on my face. I couldn't figure out why. It was me. <laughs> you know, let's be let's be honest. I wasn't. I didn't have the right skill set. I had typos in my resume. I just didn't have the experience. Right. Um, and, and he really walked me through it. And he said, you know, well, you know, let's take a look at it. Let's be proactive. Um, and he coached me through it. And, um, I have applied for many positions at Nakata or, um, throw my name in a hat for a position that required voting. Right. And guess what? There can only be one winner chicken dinner. So if you're not that winner, then you are in fact, Not in a good place. And so it's hard putting yourself out there and saying, I want to be of service and someone saying, okay, but not today. Um, and that can really hurt your feelings. And he just really coached me through it and said, you know, Cynthia, um, he does not call me Cynthia. He calls me Cease, you know, Cease, like these are opportunities for you to figure out what you can do better and what you can grow for from and where your gaps are. Or, you know, this is a path. You have two roads on this path. You can either, complain about it and be hurt, which sometimes I do. Or you can ask if there's anything else you can do to be of service. And so that's just those life lessons that sometimes you get from a parent, sometimes you get from other people. Um, then I'll be honest. I mentioned her earlier. Um, I have been working, uh, alongside, uh, a woman for a couple of years now named Dr. Villagran Glover. If you're not following her on LinkedIn, get it because she is good. And she just looks with every, at everything from a growth mindset and from, um, a design mindset. And so she has pushed my boundaries to think, Harder about things that I just took for granted. Like, why are we doing that? I don't know. We've always done it that way, but why? <laughs> you know, um, why do you think there needs to be a hold here? Why do you think this policy is in place? Why are we making students go to three hundred different places when it could just be an electronic form? And so, uh and she asked me once, "What? It, what was my why?" And nobody had ever asked me that before. And if you don't know what your why is, then what are you doing? So. You know, for me, when she asked me that, I that's when I found out my why. My why is to be of service to others. Her why is to is students. It will always be her why. If It doesn't impact the students positively. She doesn't want to hear it um, or she wants you to find a better solution. And so she's been very helpful. Um, my direct supervisor, Dr. Jennifer Lerner, has pushed me to do professional development and to do things that are kind of scary, like start, you know, really reinvent a virtual student union. That wasn't my idea. My idea was to be like, well, blast from flop. So, mm," you know, she's like, cool, try again. And I was like, ah, and then last but not least, there's a woman named Shauna Davis and she's a Virginian. Uh, She did work with achieving the dream for a while. And I think she's moved on very recently. Um, and she has pushed me throughout the years to just think harder. What if we did it differently? What if what would it look like at the next level? And then how can you lead others to get there too? So it's not just you're on you know on the positive growth train. You're taking others with you. And so you know, I, I most of the people I had are, are, are women, but it's important. It's surrounding yourself. With diverse perspectives who can help you grow, even if it's uncomfortable. And don't co sign your BS. I have plenty of co signers for my BS. That's what my partner's for. That's what my best friend's for. Mentors are people who are gonna push you to the next level. And I think that's uh, the difference. So thanks for allowing me to do the shout out. For those of you who can't see me, I'm doing the shout out dance.
1: Um, Cynthia, this has been inspiring. This has been insightful. Um, it was wonderful to, to chat to you. Um, we have a, a folklore tale in Ireland about Fionn McCool and the Salmon of Knowledge. I don't know if Matt or you are, are familiar with Irish folklore. Check it out. Fionn McCool, the Stamina Knowledge, it's about basically about like the uh, Fionn McCool is this mythical figure and, and, and acquired all this knowledge. And, and you clearly have that appetite for knowledge, but you also want to, to dispense it. And um, thank you for coming on with us. If there are listeners who would like to, to get in touch with you um, and uh, to, to get some insight because you have plenty of it, how can they go about getting in touch with you?
2: Absolutely. So I'm on um, the mean streets of Facebook and LinkedIn and have an email address. All of them so associated with C P A S C A L at NBCC.edu. So C Pascal at NBCC.edu. I um, love volunteering. I love talking about student success. I love being of service to others. So please, if you have questions, if you want more resources, um, if you want to get involved with Nakata, reach out. Um, it might take a day or two to get back to you, but I assure you I will get back to you because this is important to me. Um, so I just really appreciate you guys inviting me, um, to, to be on your podcast. I always thought my first podcast interview would be on like a, uh, a, a murder comedy show, but I'm, uh, this is actually a much better fit. <laughs>
1: I hope listeners enjoyed that interview with Cynthia. She's so knowledgeable and offered some fantastic insights and information. A link to the toolkit for holistic student supports redesign is in the show notes. Our second interview is coming up next. So let's hear from Elspeth Jones. Elspeth Jones is Emerita Professor of the Internationalization of Higher Education at Leeds Beckett University and an internationally recognized thought leader, author and researcher in the internationalization of higher education. Elspeth's research interests center on the student experience and include internationalization of the curriculum, and intercultural competence development, inclusive and integrated internationalization strategy, and personal and professional outcomes from international mobility. As founding editor of the influential Routledge book series Internationalization in Higher Education, she has worked with scholars across six continents on more than 25 books published or forthcoming. She has been involved in funded research and development projects in 25 countries and with a range of cross-national institutions, including the International Association of Universities, the European Parliament, European Commission, and Columbus Association, UNESCO. She was recently awarded the inaugural North Star Medal of Lifetime Achievement in the Noam Chomsky Global Connections Awards of the Star Scholars Network for her work in transnational research. She has won the European Association for International Education Award for Excellence in Research in 2014. Elspeth Jones, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you, Colm. It's lovely to be here. That all sounds very dry. Doesn't sound very interesting.
1: (laughs) Well, we're going to we're going to delve into all the interesting uh, bits and pieces. But what a what a bio, what a a stellar uh, career you have had, and that's that's the achievements part. You as a a person are are wonderfully interesting, also. And I suppose that's what we're going to delve into next. And what we we do when we start our podcast and when we have our guests on is we we ask about how you came into to higher ed and uh, was it something that was was you always wanted to to work in higher ed you wanted to to teach and to to research or was it something that you kind of stumbled into you found yourself in university and were inspired from talking to people across higher ed there's a myriad reasons why people kind of um come into the field so just interested in in hearing your what we've dubbed the origin story
3: okay um well both my parents were teachers and um when people used to say what would you like to do in your future the one thing i always used to say is i don't want to be a teacher uh, I, I know how hard they worked and uh, you know so I, I just had this thing i didn't want to be a teacher so that was uh, that was that i grew up in the lake district in england and uh it's very kind of sheltered existence in a way you know it's quite rural Um, went to a a, a small school and there wasn't much obvious diversity other than you know socioeconomic differences uh you know the 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 people who went to school it was it was a comprehensive school and people came from all kinds of different backgrounds um but I was always I think I was always interested in international things and um meeting people I always loved meeting people um and I, I can't remember when um, when I, I, I wasn't interested in, in international things. I always used to like watching the, the news, re, you know, hearing about things that are going on in different parts of the world. Um, and I studied languages. I started um, learning French when I was seven because I was part of a, a primary school initiative at that time. And so I can't remember when I I didn't know that there were other ways of saying things than we do in English so I, th- I suppose you know that must have had an influence and I I studied quite a few languages at school and at university um but uh I took a year out before university and um I wanted to I was I was going to carry on with some German at university although I was studying linguistics and I wanted to practice get my my German better than it was so I was looking for jobs and uh I ended up desperately uh, looking in this magazine called the lady, which um, found au pairs for people um, in different countries. I thought I'll go and be an au pair in Germany. At least I'll be able to practice my German. And um, so it was all arranged that I was going to go and be an au pair in Berlin. And the night before I went, the the lady phoned me to make the final arrangements and she said, you do realise it's East Berlin, don't you? It's not West Berlin. And that was the first time I'd realised it. Those were the days obviously in the, um, the, 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 the pre-Iron Curtain days. Um, so I thought, "Oh, this sounds interesting. And my, my mum and dad didn't think so really, but I was only 18 at the time, you see. So, um, I think they were a bit, a bit worried. Um, so the first time, um, I I lived away from home, was uh, in East Berlin with um, the, I was working for the, um, well, he was like a a permanent representative for the West German government because they didn't recognize uh, each other as countries. So he wasn't called uh, an ambassador. Um, And the first night I got there, the only time he ever spoke to me all the time in English um he he said I must tell you there are microphones in all the walls and people come and spy on us and this that and the other and there are all these things that I mustn't do and I thought this is going to be really interesting but I'm not going to be able to learn very much if I can't I, I wasn't supposed to speak to people about any anything other than everyday you know things rather than anything about the west so it was a bit disappointing in that sense because you were restricted and there was a limit to what you could talk about, but it was just fantastic experience. And, um, and then, uh, so I was there for about six months. Then I went to university and uh, I was always the one who was interested in the international students and wanted to talk to people from different backgrounds and uh, had friends from lots of different countries. Then I did my year abroad in Germany. And again, it was it was a whole range of people from from different countries at that point as well not just it wasn't just um people from germany we were surrounded by all kinds of uh, different nationalities uh and again just had a, a fabulous time and but all i wanted to do was travel after university i just wanted to uh go around the world and find out about different places so um more or less straight after graduating i set off around the world um And uh, I found I'd found somebody who was willing to travel with me, um, that which was a good a good starting point. Uh, So we traveled for about just under a year and then I ended up in Singapore and I'd run out of money. Well, I I, went to Indonesia, came back and and they said I could stay for um, a a maximum amount of time until I'd found myself a job or some other sort of income. And I managed to um, get a job with the British Council. And they they just lost a teacher for some reason. I think I can't remember why, but uh, this is we'll give you a one week trial with her classes, and if you're okay, um, we'll take you on because we are looking for new teachers. And I'd done a little bit of English language teaching, and as I say, I studied linguistics, so I I, you know kind of knew what I was talking about, but uh, didn't have any real teaching well, not much teaching experience. And um, I was lucky enough that they took me on, and then they did. they did some teacher training and I started actually finding out how really to teach English and, um, spent and fantastic students and all, again, incredible diversity because it wasn't just Singaporeans. It, Singapore's quite a, attracts people from the whole Asia, Asian East Asian region. Um, and so I was there for four years, but I always really just wanted to go to Japan and that was my, dream to get to japan so after four years i my boss moved to japan fortunately and he said well um there'll be a job for you if you're interested and yes please yes please so um i ended up then going and working in japan for three years at the british council again um setting up the teaching operation in tokyo and um, working in kyoto as well for six months and uh i, I just loved it but then i i knew that if I was I was either going to be, spend the, my life traveling around the world like lots of English teachers do, or I needed to make a decision go back to the UK. I thought I'd go back to the UK, do my masters, see what happens, see if I want to stay there. Um, and the British Council kindly gave me a scholarship to do that, which was great. Um, so I thought the only place that's going to be interesting enough in the UK after Tokyo is London, surely. So I I went to the Institute of Education, but. London was so boring after Tokyo i have to tell you i, I <laughs> it really it really was it's a different thing nowadays i think but in in those days it was just it, every everybody went to bed by about 12 whereas Tokyo was just literally a 24 hour city you know i was a i was i was i was i enjoyed the the nightlife and the the, the whole experience in japan i loved it um so I, Then after, so I got, um, I I finished my master's and started, I I was looking at jobs and I got a job at um, what was then Ealing College of Higher Education, which is now um, Thames Valley University or West West London, Uh, I've forgotten now what it is, it's had various incarnations, Um, but working in an amazing English language department run by a guy called Rod Ellis, if you're not in the field, you won't probably have heard of him but he is one of the great um, voices on second language acquisition Um, very very famous and just amazing people working there and I absolutely loved it and I was working with refugees one minute then teachers in schools then people doing their master's degrees and it was very very interesting so I thought this is I like I like this I like this job Um, and and I suppose that was my first that was my first job in in higher education, as a, a an, an English teacher and a, and tutor, I suppose. So I've I've talked a lot about all that. That hasn't even got halfway there.
1: But it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, I dubbed it the the origin story at the beginning. But it's it's an epic. It's it's really fascinating to hear your you know your journey. I mean, to to be eighteen and to be heading off to to East Germany. I, I mean, from from this far removed. That is like wow. For your parents at that point, that must have been um, quite something. And I know that you have actually um, reflected on that. You, you wrote a piece not not too long ago. I, I think thirty years later, lessons learned from from the Berlin Wall. Could you share some of, some of those reflections um, with our, our our listeners as to you know f- f- what you took from your time there and, and reflecting on it thirty years on.
3: Mm well I, I was lucky because, as I say, I worked for a diplomat and therefore um I also got c d plates which allowed me easily to cross relatively easy to cross the border between east and West Germany well in East Berlin specifically to West berlin and so I had a lot of friends uh, on on the west as well as in the east. The thing was in the east it was mainly non-german people because as i say it was difficult to but i had a really good friend from denmark and various other people from from different parts of the world and so again that that uh, grabbed my interest and the people i was talking to meeting and spending time within west berlin were from all kinds of different countries so my i felt Bad, though, that I couldn't really talk to people about their experience in East Berlin. Um, and then when I was in the um, in my year abroad in in, in Kiel in North Germany, um, the uh, students union had a one week trip to Berlin and it was the first time I'd gone back. Um, and then I, I was I wasn't under sort of diplomatic kind of restrictions, as it were. And it was just fascinating being in the East and talking to people. And I learned more just going back for that one week about what their lives were like than I did, um, the, than I did when I was there for six months or whatever. Um, so that was fascinating. And then the time after that that I went back was on the 10th anniversary of the wall coming down. And it, I, I had this incredible experience when I walked under the Brandenburg Gate so many people will have done this now that it won't seem unusual but the Brandenburg Gate was right in the middle of no man's land where the wall went right through Berlin and I it was so sad in many in many ways to see these divisions families you know having been divided I I mean I read a lot about that sort of stuff as well and you could never go through the brandenburg gate you could go up to it on both sides or i could but you could never go through but that time i went back on the 10th anniversary i walked through and i just burst into tears i mean it was just an incredibly emotional moment to see that um and i've i've been back since then quite a few times and and i i, I love berlin it's a great place but uh, interestingly there's um there's the, a famous station uh, which was one of the crossing points when I lived there, um, Friedrichstraße uh, was uh, the, one of the crossing points. And it, there's a famous station there now. And, and I was on the on the, uh, on the the subway with my, my husband and I just looked out the window as we arrived at the station. I said, that's weird. There's a, a pub down there called Ständige Vertretung. And that's the that was the name of the permanent representation of West Berlin. Um, to the east, it was a permanent representation rather than an embassy. So we wandered in. I thought this is going to be interesting, and it was all about the old days, about about East Berlin. And on the wall, there was my former boss as a photo on the wall. So, uh, and there's another one in Bonn, apparently. So there are two. There are two of these. It was. It, it's. It's a. It. It makes me think a lot when I go there um it it makes me feel how you know we div- we divide ourselves in so many different ways as you know as a planet as people there are so many divisions and you know walls and barriers being put up and um it's just so wrong and we need to be learning more about each other and we need to be you know more tolerant and and enjoying experiences of other people rather than trying to put up barriers so you know it's it's been a very very long learned lesson for me that uh, you know let's not build any walls
1: yeah i i i share th- those sentiments and what i found really interesting was as well kind of it touched when you were talking about you know your your initial interest in all things international you talked about like Learning French, and that you thought, you know, you immediately said, "There's, there's a different way of saying this. There's a different way of viewing this, and it's still the same object." But we're just talking about it in in different ways, and and it's still the same thing to us. So I think that can that is kind of a, a little little a little bit uh, profound, and, and and probably when when I think in terms of you know culture, and and in terms of even say Ireland and the or, or, or our own language, that certainly rings that uh, rings through. Now, in you you we talked this was about your route into higher ed, but you took that interest in. Um, you know, people in internationalization, and you turned it into a career, mm. into all, all of the the, the research that um, that you have done, um, and you, we. I suppose I, I'm. I'd love to to spend uh, you know an infinite no, uh, amount of time picking your brain, but I'm I'm particularly interested um, for certainly this podcast episode. We we definitely like to have you back, but um, your piece around um, problematizing and reimagining the notion of international student experience, because I think for a lot of our listeners. Um, be they advisors, personal tutors, um, staff in in higher ed, um, you know, faculty advisors, whatever they're working in higher ed, they're all going to be working with students. They're all going to be dealing with the the student and, and the student experience. So, in in terms of that piece, I suppose when we talk about or um, you know, problematizing or reimagining the notion of international students. What does that mean el
3: <laughs> it's a really good it's a really good question um you just said you you' were saying about the the influence of language and um knowing that there are different ways of saying the same thing I think one of the the key thing that that taught taught me really is that nothing is normal we shouldn't imagine that anything is normal and everything else is something else, that somebody else is other. And this is a, you know, that people have different ways of doing things, different ways of saying things, different habits, different customs, different rituals, and that is all part of reality. And we need to learn more about it and be more accepting of those things. The result of that, I spoke not the result, but one of the factors in that is that you need to be, constantly thinking outside the way that we've become used to thinking. So thinking abnormally, as it were, you know, it's not normal to, to this, that or the other. One of the things that we've become very lazy about in our field is talking about international students, I think. And people will say, oh, you know, our international students need this. Well, OK, maybe some of them do. Um, but the international students are not all the same. No, There is no group of people which is all the same. And they. we need to be much more um, disaggregating, I suppose, in the way that we think about our students. And whether they come from other countries or whether they are born in our, the country wherever the university is, we just need to think differently about them. Um, because we need to stop lumping people together, basically. And you'll hear people say, oh, Chinese students this, or Indian students that, or, I mean, the diversity in China and India is absolutely enormous and between countries, you know, even more so. So the reason why I wrote that piece was because i I kept reading reports which tell me you know from various sources that Chinese students do this or 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 Vietnamese students think this way or need that and I just didn't I, I just didn't I just didn't accept it so I started to write down all of the to try and categorize try and try and sort of come up with areas in which we can look at diversity. From a person, in terms of a person's background, apart from you know the obvious things like you know religion or ethnicity and so on, gender, sexuality or whatever, but about um, hit, hit the personal background to do with their parents or siblings or if they've been to university before or if they had friends who'd lived overseas, those kinds of things that can all have an influence on anybody's experience. And then I t- I tried to look at whether if you were from, if you were a, a sort of a native of the country, wherever your university is, how many of these things are actually different? And they're not really. There's a huge overlap between the experience of those we call international and those we call domestic students, but equally there's massive diversity in both groups. And there's intersectionality as well. So you'll have students. You maybe have students who are from another country, not from where the university is located, who may be disabled, maybe the first in their family. They might have childcare responsibilities. So that that intersectionality of all of the issues, I think we just need to think much more carefully about all of these aspects of the student experience. Now, in particular, um, the where the grey the gray area is an issue is that you as as the world becomes more diverse as there's more mobility and people live in countries maybe where they weren't born or their parents came from somewhere else in the world you have much more diversity locally so you'll have people who are first second third generation immigrant families but equally you will have Refugees who might have relatively recently arrived, and you'll have people who've come from directly from another country, um, and they may be. Let's say they were all from. Let's just randomly take a country in Africa. Let's say Tanzania. You might have somebody who's lived. Uh, the families had three, four generations in the UK, for example. Someone whose parents came, uh, someone who's a refugee, or someone who's actually. Um, come over to study uh, in in the UK for example and those three sets of people will have had very very different life stories and very they may not even have much to link them together Uh, they may not be able to to, you know to communicate in the same way simply because they they've got a background in a certain country doesn't mean they'll all be able to uh, naturally relate together so This then brings us to the question as to the kind of services that we provide for people coming from different source countries or different backgrounds. So we assume when we say international students, they all need help with their English language. No, they don't. Because international students, for example, will include American students studying in the UK, people whose first language is English um but you'll equally have for example refugees or people who even people who have been living in the country for some time whose first language is not english who may need help with their language but they are not deemed to be within the category international students and therefore they don't get the help they need equally the people who've come from Far out in, I'm, you know, you're you're living in Ireland. I'm sure there are still people in very rural communities in Ireland who come to Dublin for the first time and they find it a real shock to the system. But they are Irish students. They're not going to get any special support because they've come from the, you know, rural areas. So all I'm trying to do that a very grand title for that article. Um, basically, I'm trying to get us to think, to differentiate. Between exactly what we mean in these different contexts we 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 don't we shouldn't lump people together assuming they've all got the same needs, but equally, there are whole groups of people whose needs we're not taking into account because we don't call them international students and and I, I just think we've got we've got to think very differently about the way we provide our services and the way we think about our students and 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 try not to imagine that that they're all the same
1: yeah i think you will have plenty of listeners nodding along i i know i you i think sometimes it can even it can be well-meaning i i'm thinking i i know i have had people come to me at times and say oh we're not we're not having any alcohol at this particular event because of international students yeah Yeah. (laughs) of what what does that what does that mean? And I think it's well intentioned. Um but again it is kind of, you know, every everyone is in that that same cohort and they all behave in a uniform way. But I think it's it's not even just international. Like I could see it sometimes with, with first gen students or or you know, because sometimes you might have what what we deem a second gen or a third gen students who, who still their their parents college experience was so different from maybe their experience and that they can't access the support services because, well, you don't, we don't, we don't have you listed on the system as a first gen student. Um, and especially in times of COVID where, you know, things are gone online. I mean, for a lot of people, that would be so far removed from what their parents would have experienced. So I think there is a lot that could be done to, to think and reimagine our service provision absolutely right across the, the spectrum of, of the, the university. And I think that's where there will be people who are listening, who, who don't necessarily deal with international students, who, but who can empathise and who will say, yes, I think, yeah, we, if, we, if we were to, to look at it and, and we were to um, see how we do service provision. Um, but that, is a, that would be a big undertaking. For, mm-hmm. for universities and how how do you go about trying to to win over if you're um not a a, a dean or, or you're, you're not a, a um you know a, a seat at the top table how do you go about winning support for such an initiative
3: well i think again this is a lot to do with connections and relationships and thinking laterally really across the institution and the, yes, you're right, it's it, it's all very well if, you know, if senior managers say it's going to happen this way and it, it happens and whatever, but what can people at the sort of advising level do? Well, part of the problem in institutions that I'm familiar with anyway, in, in, in the kind of universities that I've visited and worked in, um, the, 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 there are silos created everywhere. And you you do this. <clears throat> That's what your job is. That's somebody else's job. Don't tread on my toes. Don't tell me how to do my job kind of thing. But if we instead of that, if we try and build bridges and start talking to people about the connections between all these different services. How can we, you know, let's say you work in the international office, for example. How can the international office talk to people in say, student accommodation or in catering or in the finance office or just even you know you can make connections across people at the same grade as yourself and actually start having conversations without it needing to be some massive directive from from the top you know um having a coffee with different people or having a you know some I when I started doing this uh we did you know we didn't go down direct uh, down the full route that I'm talking about here but when I first started working with international students um I got a small working group together with people from across all the different services and they were by no means the sort of most senior people in those areas but we had this kind of um international student working group we called it at that point because we were concerned that the the services that a lot of people were slipping through the cracks Um, and we just met and had coffee together and chatted about what the issues were and we we started moving things forward Um, and eventually we um we 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 decided to write a report for the um the senior executive team and it had 75 recommendations uh, so i wouldn't recommend that that's not good um so, so that was a that was a degree of uh, a degree of naivety on my part but they were all very important and very valid and actually it got taken forward in different ways um and step by step improvements were made so I think it's, it's up to individuals to try and make those connections rather than wait for something strategic at the top or, or a senior manager to say things. I mean, some people have gone about it by talking to their manager and then the manager's talking. And um, I don't know, I just think we all need to talk to each other, really. We've got to make the institution work as well as it, it possibly can for, you know, everybody in the institution.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that's um, sage advice there. Now, one of the the other things that I know you've kind of um, written on in the the past and looked into is around um, inclusive internationalization and and kind of improving access and equity. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about that, Elspeth?
3: Okay. So, In terms of when we're talking about internationalization, there's there's a kind of there's a, a very people still say what is internationalization, by the way. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of going a little bit down that route. Um, there's a the rationale is either a kind of a pragmatic type rationale. We need people to be able to live and work together. We need we need people to perform jobs in this way, working across multicultural teams or whatever but there's also there's the values-based rationale and that you can gather that's where my my real interest lies so it's linked to things like equity social justice um you know anti-discriminatory practice those kinds of things so internationalization i don't think it's a really good word for it i've taught called it interculturalization in some of my writing because it's not always about other countries it's about relationships with people and it's linked to being a good citizen and being, you know, thoughtful and 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 welcoming and interested and curious in fellow citizens, wh- whatever their background. So th- that kind of values driven approach to me um, uh, sort of embodies such a wide range of issues. It, it, internationalization is the wrong word to cover all of that somehow, but we don't have a better word. And so I think the the idea that, you know, in a way it's about humanity. It's about being a good person and how we then relate to other people, in which case we need to relate to them and include them regardless of their background. And we know that international education is is very exclusive. We know that something like only 2% of the world's student population will ever spend time in another country. We know that study abroad and mobility programmes are for a a small elite of people. The European Union target for 2020 was 20% of the population to have a mobility experience as part of their time at university. Uh, They didn't, I don't, some countries would have made that target and others exceeded it. But even if you did make the target, that's 80% of people who are not getting those experiences. So internationalization of the curriculum or internationalization at home, bringing an international experience for everybody in the institution, every single student, and I would say every member of staff, by the way, at the institution, is absolutely crucial as far as I'm concerned. And we need to look at how we can make um, a lot of the things we do more accessible for people who may be, um, they may have disabilities, they may be from underrepresented or minority groups um, or, you know, this includes all kinds of people. I, I, I know you've had um, that wonderful podcast that you did about the Traveller Movement, which really moved me. Um, And I realised, you know, in terms of the list of of people I try to include when I'm thinking about these things, I hadn't got travellers down at all. So that's now in my list. And every time I talk about it, you know, I'm trying to think about being inclusive of all communities, Um, indigenous communities, for example, if you're thinking about, say, Canada or Australia or, or New Zealand and Um, As you say, first in family, people with different types of um, backgrounds uh, make it more or less difficult for them to um, access the university or be comfortable at the university. How do we create an environment? How do we make it an inclusive opportunity, both the institution itself as a whole, but more broadly, the international element of the institution needs to be more inclusive and we, we you know we tend to think of internationalization as student recruitment or partnership building or you know how many people have you sent to another country as part of their program how many international staff have you got how many international publications or how many co-authored publications have the staff got they're very easily countable numbers and that's why senior managers like them because they can count them and say whether they're doing very well Uh, but actually the number of partnerships you've got does not tell you anything about the kind of experience students are having if they go there or the students from those institutions are having if they come to you Um, they the numbers are are, are, are really not helpful and it's focusing on the numbers I think and and I'm not going to say what I really think about league tables, by the way, but you can probably guess, um, all of those things, all of those counting things take our attention away from the really important, what I I think that the sort of values-driven, values-based approach to internationalisation rather than a pragmatic and accountable one.
1: I think we can hear your your passion come come through, which is fantastic. Which is why um, I admire and um, enjoy your your work so much. And I know that you've addressed um, a lot of this in um, a YouTube, um, well, obviously in in your your um, your series, the the Routledge the book series internationalization um, in higher ed but you also you did a YouTube series uh, recently can you talk to me a little bit um, about the, the YouTube series because I imagine there will be some listeners who um, would like to hear uh, a bit more from, from you and, and others in the field so um, can tell me a little bit about that.
3: Well this is um, early on in the first lockdown last year I think that, um, it was probably March 2020 that I started thinking about this and I I, I've got lots of really good friends in international education and, uh, you know, some of my good friends like Hans Witt, Betty Lesk, Jos Balen, various people who are quite well known. Um, and I thought, you know, we have these really interesting conversations. What if I just recorded them and people could listen in, as it were, rather than we just have these conversations? A bit like you and me here, Colm, because, I mean, you know, we always have great conversations anyway. But I thought, well, I'm going to see if anybody's interested so I got a few people roped in um, and we just did a zoom recording and they're all online Uh, I think I did 28 in the end uh, because I got I was getting feedback after I'd done sort of two or three people were feeding back and saying oh that's really interesting I've got nothing to do in lockdown I'm really enjoying these conversations with people We try to keep them short um, you know 15-20 minutes uh, maximum and i tried to take different themes as well so each each video um has uh i i talked to to or i i tried not to talk too much by the way i tried to ask questions more than anything else but um the people who who i've spoken to were were talking about really different themes across internationalization or international education um and i think uh, that's the thing that's quite interesting and the same with the book series really because um when I when I go to Routledge and say I've got another proposal to come through for this for this book series that you know they'll say things like I, I, how can there be so much to talk about in internationalization or inter, you know uh, but they're all quite different I think and they're all um there are so many different dimensions to it and I think you get a flavor of that with the YouTube conversations and a flavor of that with the books I hope people people feel that way so uh, and then when I, I I did my I said I'm pausing now because I think you know people can't catch up with all of these videos and I need to have a bit of a break and I was getting all these tweets and e- emails saying you can't stop this is the only thing keeping me sane in lockdown I thought no that will be all right <laughs> but you know, and I I might go back to them at some point, but uh, it was great fun doing them. It's lovely to see, you know, gave a real sense of, even though I'm locked down in my house and have been, you know, more or less the whole year, um, talking to, talking to people in different parts of the world, all the different continents. It's just really, really great to, to get all those different perspectives, I think.
1: Yeah, and it's really accessible. I think that's what, 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 what's great about it. And it is kind of bite-sized, as, as you said. Um, and I, I, I'm i sure that there will be people who will um, have listened to to this um, podcast and th- this interview and may want to, to get in touch with you, having uh, heard of uh, your accomplishments, having heard about some of your, your travels. Um, if people out there are, are looking to, to get in touch with you, Elspeth, what is the, the best way to, to go about that?
3: Well, if I, if I tell you all my contact details, they're going to forget them. So the easiest thing is that I've got a website, elspethjones.com, and it's got all my contact details and it's got publications and, and link to all the videos as well if people are interested. So that's the easiest thing. So it's just elspethjones.com.
1: Perfect. Um, look, I would keep chatting to you um, all evening. It is always fascinating. It is always insightful. I admire and, and just love your passion for for students and for knowledge and for improving educational access and educational experiences. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today.
3: Oh, it's great to talk to you, Colin.
0: Thank you so much to our guests today. Thank you, Cynthia, and thank you, Elspeth. Truly appreciate it and lots of great tidbits that you've given us. As we wrap up here, please subscribe to our podcast. Give us a rating and also a comment if you wish. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising.